are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Today's Rootbound is brought to you by Celery, the true star events on a log. Celery, it's aromatic. Hi there. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Rootbound. My name is Steve, and we have quite a spirited episode for you today. And by spirited, I mean spirits. Yes, that's right, alcohol. And so before we talk to our guest today, I thought I would talk about that connection between plants and alcohol, because all alcohol starts with a plant. Think about it. What's your favorite drink? Wine? That's grapes. Beer? That's wheat or barley. Cider? That's apples. Yes, all alcohol starts with plants. But how do we get from plants to alcohol? It has to do with a process called fermentation. Now, fermentation is actually a big topic that has lots of processes involved or kinds of fermentation, but the general definition of fermentation is a chemical breakdown of a substance by microorganisms. And in this case, we're talking about yeast, and yeast break down the sugars from plants and turn it into alcohol and carbon dioxide. So uh, if you ever had the experience of of brewing something yourself, it's a really fun and kind of magical experience when you mix all these things together and then all of a sudden you start getting these bubbles, right? And that's the CO2 that the uh, yeast are creating, but they're also at the same time creating alcohol. And over time, that alcohol concentration of that that product goes higher and it's, it's very exciting. Uh, that's what fermentation is, and if the next time you have something to drink, thank some yeast, but also thank a plant. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Hi, Chantal. How's it going? It's good. How are you, Steve? I'm doing good. Did you have a plant to share with us today? Yes, I wanted to uh, share my love for the wormwood plant. Wonderful. I can't wait to hear about this from you in particular. Cool. <laughs> well, I mean, I can I can start telling you about, about Wormwood. Yes, please. And, and, and also why it's uh, meaningful to you. Oh, okay, sure. So Wormwood uh, is, a, is a misunderstood plant. And I, you know me well enough to know I have, a, I have a soft spot for the underdogs of the spirited and green world, if you will. And Wormwood, of course, has a, an association as being the key... Uh, components to absinthe. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of absinthe. And so wormwood, uh, its Latin name is Artemisia absinthinium. I know I was going to say that wrong. Absinthinium. <laughs> uh, uh, mispronouncing Latin names is a theme on this podcast. <laughs> cool, cool. I just want to be a part of it. You know, I want to be part of the, yeah. the greater community of what you do. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> So Artemisia absinthium, uh, the, the term, of course, harkens back to the goddess Artemis of the hunt and the forest. Oh, yeah. I didn't ever think about that, actually. Yeah. That's another, of course, key thing I love about so much about the Wormwood and all of its little connections. Its connection to absinthe, its connection to its story. Um, it's a pungent, sort of a bitter, silvery herb that uh, loves the Mediterranean weather and climate, but can also be grown in different 
versions because there's many different variations of it. Um, so also like in the Alps, right, in the mountainous regions where it gets more scrubbier mm. and bush-like. Um, and then that kind of gets associated with this other cool liqueur called Genipi. But wormwood is the key like bitter herb that has an amazing variety. But the grand, um, the grand wormwood that I was just specifically referencing in absinthe, the Artemisia absinthium, um, is pretty specific. It's the key component for absinthe, not for Genipi. And um, it's it's something that I've learned more and more about. I've gotten I've got learned some myths and saw how through history it's been misunderstood. So that's that's where the love comes from. Very very good. Um, I'm thinking now. You know, I'm also a big fan of absinthe, which you also know. I do know. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have been thinking though. I don't think I've ever seen an absinthe plant in real life. And one, have you? And and also, you know, if you have, or if you've just looked it up, can you describe the plant? I don't think I actually know what it looks like oh yeah well i don't think i've had like an actual absinthe plant um because it's i'm not i don't live in an area we don't live in an area where the true like artemisia absinthinium grows but there are certainly other variations of wormwood that grow around and that are local i know that they're in virginia um but it's like a it's kind of got like a silvery green hue to the leaves and it's um i do only the photos i've seen of them are just sort of this like uh tall growing like grass plant thing not grass but um it has these different the leaves that sprout out and it has like the silvery green hue and the and they they flower right so they have like little white flowers um i don't know how else i don't know if i'm describing it better (laughs) i'm sure people are googling as well uh, as as we speak because that's also a theme um yeah i i i think now that i think about it you know i i remember actually now i just came to me i have a plant in my backyard that is called mugwort Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is also an Artemisia. And I think they look kind of similar. So yeah, it's like a smallish bush, pretty leaves, but yeah, the leaf shape, I don't know. Google it, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, there, yeah. there are many little tiny fronds. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah, good at yes. descriptions, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I'm trying to do in this podcast to learn a little bit more about like the botany descriptions, but it's hard. There's a lot of, a lot of vocabulary and like just describing leaves alone, yeah. like it's a whole thing. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, what, do you have some fun facts and dazzling details about wormwood? Oh, sure. Well, we can first start about the um, the fact that it's the uh, main component to um, true absinthe. And what it adds to absinthe is so much aroma and bitterness and sort of this little menthol equality. And uh, just there's, of course... Uh, the other trio includes uh, green anise and fennel, and those are the main. There's other herbs that get added. But another fun fact uh, has to do with the Artemisia, the Artemis goddess of the hunt, and how she has a story where she actually rides through the forest and provides Chiron, the centaur doctor dude. I don't know if you remember mythology. <laughs> With like with Artemisia absinthium for like this healing medicine, it's like one of the key things in the stories. And so throughout history, like much much older than absinthe, the first recipe of absinthe, which is more around the 1700s, but is the infusion of wormwood into um, wines and into liquids. So there's like teas, but also just sort of the beginnings of that like aromatized style of wines. Wormwood was a very old component, not just in Europe, but also like in China and down further south and in like northern Africa and other places. So it's it's kind of got like a really long history of medicinal purposes. <laughs> very interesting. I, I did not know that. Um, 
maybe going back a little bit for our audience, because I think, you know, we're on the same page when it comes to absinthe, but maybe you could just like, tell us a bit more about absinthe. Like, what is it? Oh, and yeah, yeah. why is it so cool and interesting? <laughs> so absinthe is a high proof spirit um, that uh, originated in Switzerland and France. And that there's a lot of different variations uh, but the true absinthe is a distilled spirit that is very high proof. Uh, and it's high proof because, as I mentioned earlier, the trio of herbs that get uh, macerated and then distilled into the distillate are, um, they don't, just, they need a high proof alcohol to stay dissolved. Otherwise, they're just not, uh, they won't stay in solution. <laughs> so you need really, really high proof. And so the spirit that comes out of it is called absinthe. And it from Grand Wormwood Artemisia Absinthinium. Keep saying that wrong. Absinthinium. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so when you dilute, when you add water and take down the solution, then you undissolve the herbs of the spirit, and that process is sort of the the luching effect. So you water down the absinthe to let the the oils, the essential oils, um, dissolve out of its solution so it becomes colloidal and cloudy, which is what louche translates into. And then it becomes something that you sip and it's full of herbal notes, high, often the largest, sorry, the most yeah, prevalent note is licorice um, from the anise seed, the green anise. But the wormwood adds a lot of sort of these bitter qualities um, and the, uh, there's a little bit of a menthol, but there's just like a general herb greenness to it. And then there's the fennel, uh, among other macerated herbs that get added later. Um, it's got lots of history. Absinthe was considered poisonous, but it was really just a giant political campaign by uh, the temperance movement and the wine distil the wine movement, like the people, the wineries that were going through a terrible time in the 1800s with phylloxera, devastating vineyards. And when absinthe was coming out of that being really popular, um, they were not so happy that it was getting so popular. People were like, wait, no, come back to wine. And so there was like politics involved. And so it kind of distorted the image of what absinthe was, which was said to be, oh, hallucinogenic. When in fact, the the chemical that is associated with this fantasy of it being super hallucinogenic is called thujone. And the amounts of thujone that are naturally in wormwood are tiny. And that it's just a matter of if you have a ton of this, like, a ridiculous amount, which is not something we'd ever do, then it could be a neurotoxin, a poisonous neurotoxin, and cause like liver damage and seizures and kill you. But it's just kind of like a lot of things are not actually harmful unless you have them in super high concentrated doses. That's kind of what poisons, uh, the nature of the variety of poisons, right? That reminds me of two things. One, going back to episode five of our podcast, which is about lavender, we talked about the, the Swiss uh, physician and alchemist named Paracelsus. And he's the guy who uh, coined the phrase, the dose makes the poison. Yes. Um, and I think that's very true with wormwood. And, and it reminds me, when I first learned that fact about, you know, I always heard that wormwood was hallucinogenic, and that's why absinthe was banned, which is totally false, as you just described. But then it's I learned that, yeah, if you were to hallucinate from the wormwood in absinthe, you would be long dead from alcohol poisoning before that, I think is the case. Exactly. Yeah. And um, there's just so much history there, which I could get into. I do teach absinthe classes for anyone who wants to hire me. I'm happy to do so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we can tease some of that stuff here. You don't have to go. I know that we could do a, <laughs> a long time on the history of absinthe for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I've taken one of those classes. It's very fun. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. What, do you have any other like interesting facts about Wormwood itself? Um, yeah, the... This one's kind of fun, um, just because I don't think anyone knows this. That the so technically, wormwood, which contains that thujone, was never 
even though it was just a misunderstanding, it was while it was banned in the U.S. and Canada in 1912, technically it was only the levels of thujone that were banned. But at the time, they didn't have the proper measurements or understanding that there was so little thujone that it technically absinthe was never banned because it never actually had. Oh wow! Just the idea of it was banned. So I mean, you couldn't just get it and drink it; you would be arrested because you couldn't prove that there was actually not enough thujone. And it was only discovered because in the 1970s. Um, some folks were like, I wonder if uh, that's, that zoon is related to THC. And so some people did some experiments and found out, oh, no, they're not at all related. THC being <laughs> like the, the canna- cannabis chemical in uh, marijuana, right? Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, then now there started, there was a door that opened about, oh, maybe we can understand the chemical structure, what this is. And then that eventually, and then they got like shelved again until the 2000s. And then they were like, oh. There's really not a lot of thujone in this. Oh, Technically, wow. though, we don't need the band. Never really existed. If you want to get really like lawyery about it, technically. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I remember. I remember the first time I visited Switzerland. You know, I used to live in Switzerland, and my my wife was there, and she lived there before me. Right. And the first time I visited her, absence was still illegal in the United States, or, or apparently it wasn't, but. The, it was the impression that it was illegal, and I remember how how cool I, I felt bringing back a bottle of absinthe, um, somewhat surreptitiously uh, to the United States. But then, pretty shortly after, it, it became legal and it wasn't as uh, cool anymore. But yeah, I I had my own little personal journey with absinthe of like learning about it and going down the rabbit holes of it, and uh, having it in the Czech Republic, which is actually not real absinthe for the most part, which is a whole other thing that you can learn in in Chantal's class about it. But this whole <laughs> thing about lighting it on fire is kind of a weird thing. We don't have to get into that now. But then my thing was, is I, I wanted to find the absinthe that was apparently the most like absinthe pre-band. Because it was also banned in Europe for a long time, right? Um, and oh, yeah. and there is this kind of like thing of like, how has the recipe been held onto through that period of banning? Um, and I found this one, which I don't know if you're familiar with, one that was called New, uh, Nouvelle Orléans or Nouvelle Orleans or New of... Yeah. And I had read at the time, this was like 2006 um, or five, that that one particular one was like the, the most like the pre-ban absinthe. And so we, uh, Carla and I tracked it down in this bar in Paris that served it. And it turned out to be like a heavy metal bar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, yeah, but it was a really cool experience. They had these... Um, uh, these special little like cup things for like doing the dripping of absinthe, which if people aren't, aren't uh, under, uh, maybe you could explain that real quick about this dripping method of preparing absinthe. Oh yeah. So the, as mentioned before, absinthe, which has uh, different herbs macerated and distilled and into this macerated into the recipe. And then it's later distilled as a spirit. Um, When you add the water, the different oils will come out at different rates of dilution. So, um, if you drip slowly, you get a slow release of all the oils, and then they kind of come and harmonize. Um, and so that's sort of where the absinthe drip, the watering down, comes into, because you're letting each oil slowly bloom into fragrance in your glass. And so you, they've create. There's lots of tools, right? So now you have a fountain, you can have a, a nice spoon, and you can. And there's a whole artistry and craft behind all of these different tools. There's something called a bruyere. Um, it's like a little seesaw dripping method. I have one of those. Those are great. And then the glasses, like, uh, I think they're called Pantarlier glasses, uh, or 
some places are called that, but not always. And they just are these like highballs. Usually they have a stem on them and you sit them underneath your absinthe fountain and they have like the perfect little circumference where you can rest a spoon that has a little slot on it or rest a bruyere, which has these little cloth things to sit on top. Um, and, and then it just, you drip cold water slowly and it looshes and you get it to the right, um, the right place usually it's like four to one depending on the proof of your absinthe and then you sip it and it and it's not like overpowering it doesn't burn your mouth out because it's at the proper level of sipping and it's delicious as you know did i, did I yeah that, was that enough yeah that, yeah <laughs> that's actually an interesting point too with absinthe is that well one that the louche talking about this like cloudiness mm-hmm. if you've never seen that it's a really cool phenomenon and especially in the right lighting I think it's one of the reasons why maybe absinthe has this like mystical quality because it looks like it can be glowing in the right lighting because of this cloudiness. Um, but, oh, the other thing is, you know, absinthe is very high proof. It's like, what, 60 to 75, 68, 75%. It could be very high alcohol content, right? Oh, yeah. It's usually usually in the 60s and 70s and depending, it depends. Like, I've seen some that are a little less, but they're usually in the 60s and 70s and they can go even higher. Yeah, but I think the point that a lot of people get is you're you're like never drinking that straight, right? You're you're watering it down, and then it's probably more like a, I don't know what what the alcohol content once it's watered down is. It's like not much more than a glass of wine, probably, or maybe that, a little that, bit higher. That's the trick. That's the trick for all of the world is a, a glass of wine and a bottle of beer, and uh, one shot of high proof spirit, and then one shot of absinthe, which is usually an ounce, not an ounce and a half when you dilute it, and it all comes to like the same ABV. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, although, yeah, going back to that heavy metal bar, they had these little things which I don't think I've ever seen before. Maybe you know what it. It was like a little like metal cup that had a very tiny hole at the bottom, so that the absinthe would drip out the this tiny hole, and that's how they served it. So they like basically just stuck the cup in front and like dumped all the shot in, and it like in it in it it dripped like that. Uh, yeah, that's the Bruyere that I was talking about earlier. I, this didn't have an action. Oh, it didn't though. have a seesaw thing to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's all part of the same family. I have one with a seesaw, which is fun because then it goes back and forth. But it can just if it drips slowly, then it's just another drip. Yeah, and it's all about yeah. dripping water. I think it, people get confused that you're putting like absinthe in the fountain or in the when it's actually no, the absinthe goes in the glass and then you drip water on top of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, cool. Do you have anything else to say about wormwood? I guess that there's so many different variations, and like we talked about how the artemisium absinthium and the grand wormwood is like the one that's the key component for absinthe. But then, but wormwood, like you mentioned, mugwort, and then on the Alps, it can grow like in these higher al- altitudes. Um, and that actually people don't really know what the plant tastes like, but it usually, it tastes closer to what genipe is than what absinthe is. Cause absinthe is mostly about that anise. Mm-hmm. That's it. Very good. <laughs> The green fairy who lives in the absence wants your soul. But you are safe with me. Thank you for explaining to me more about Wormwood. Um, do you mind if I share a plant with you? I would love to hear about your plant. Okay, so I, I was, you know, I'm always trying to pick plants for my guests that kind of go with the the uh, the guest and, and you know since you are a, a master of spirits I chose a plant that is related uh, to spirits uh, and I'm going to start off explaining about the plant a little bit and then I'll tell you about why it's meaningful to me because it is like more of a 
alcohol-related reason than it is necessarily specific plant-related reason. Okay, great. So the plant that I chose is the plum, which is a bit, you know, of a, a very common plant. I like thinking of plants that are very common, but then kind of getting into the interesting things about them. The very first thing I learned about plum was that it is maybe the very first domesticated fruit, which is quite interesting. Oh. And and they know that because the three main species of uh, plum, and so the genus for plum is prunus, which makes sense because dried plums are prunes, the name's all related. But the three main species, which are prunus domestica, prunus salicina, and prunus simi- simoni, none of those can be seen in the wild. So that means that they've been domesticated for a very long time. Um, oh. And there are wild plums that exist, but um, but those three apparently are have only like the only evidence of them is cultivated. Um, Prunus domestica is from Eastern Europe, um, and then the other two are from China. Um, and there are lots of other varieties as well, including there is an American plum, but I'm not going to talk about the day because that might come to another episode later. Okay. So I'm talking about those European and Asian plums, and those are the ones that we mostly know in the store. Um, they are a droop, which I talked about in another episode, which is a classification of fruit, which is basically stone fruits or, or droops. So, you know, peaches, uh, plums, mm-hmm. apricots. Um, if you ever look at a plum, it, it, some, often they look like they have this like white layer of dust on them. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? Like they look kind of like yes. cloudy. Yeah. That is something that I just learned about called a peculiar wax, which is... Apparently, most plants have some kind of wax, but on a plum, it's it's particularly apparent. I think they produce a bit more of it than other plants, but also because of that dark color of the skin, it you can see it. And it's naturally produced wax by the fruit, which apparently many, like many plants produce some kind of wax like that, but it's particularly apparent on the plum and gives it that beautiful look, which makes it look really great in... Uh, like old fashioned still life paintings that like when they really nail that waxy bloom is what it's also called. Um, so um, then I started thinking about prunes and I was like, Hmm. Yeah. I don't really, I don't think I have had a good appreciation for prunes. So I actually bought some the other day and been having them for dessert. They're really tasty. Um, and I started reading about prunes and I, 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 uh, I normally avoid just reading straight from Wikipedia, but there's two quotes from prunes that I thought was, pretty pretty uh, interesting one is there's a section in the prune wikipedia that just says name change and then it says in 2001 plum growers in the united states were authorized by the food and drug administration to call prunes dried plums due to the perception that prunes relieve constipation and perceived as derogatory <laughs> <laughs> so some distributors stopped using the word prune and started calling them dried plums because yeah it's weird that the prunes have this like have this uh perception that that they're like stop constipation which i guess apparently they do uh there's another quote in the um wikipedia that says the european uh food and safety authority uh put out a report that demonstrates that prunes effectively contribute to maintenance of normal bowel function in the general population if consumed in quantities of at least 100 grams per day so there you go but it shouldn't be bad it's it's a that's a good thing i don't know why it's a great thing (laughs) have your prunes um like most stone fruit this is true for peaches as well there's kind of two main styles and there's clingstone prunes or clingstone plums and freestone plums. And that has to do with how that seed in the middle, a clingstone, it's hard to get the, the seed off of the plum and a freestone. It's very easy. And because of that, the clingstone ones are normally the ones that you eat fresh from the supermarket. And the freestone ones are normally used for prunes because you can get that seed out and dry it better. Huh. So it's an interesting little fact. Um, 
when it comes to um, prune production, China is the number one country for, for, uh, for they say prunes, plums, prunes are dried plums. Uh, China is the number one country for producing plums, but in, in like, it's, the source is a little bit different, but pretty close in the second to third or fourth place, and actually basically on par with the United States, which is surprising for the size, is Romania. Romania is one of the biggest producers of plums in the world. And that's where my personal story comes in because I've been to Romania a number of times. Oh. I'm a big fan of Romania. And Romania produces a lot of plums, but they don't export many because they use most of it to make uh, plum brandy. Right. I was like wondering where we we're going to get to plum brandy. <laughs> Indeed. And um, uh, I learned just recently, you might, you probably know this, that the word brandy comes from a Dutch word, which is brandywine, which means burnt wine, which is essentially brandy. You're taking wine and you're distilling it. So you're putting it on a fire, yes. you're distilling the alcohol out. But in Romania, there's two words they use for uh, distilled plum spirits. They actually can do it with other fruits as well, but plum is the most common. And I think it's because the sugars in plum make it particularly, it's easier to do than other fruits. But the two words are tsuika, which actually starts with a T with a little the little dangly on it that they use in Romania, or palinka. And palinka is actually a word that's common in a lot of those uh, Eastern European um, languages. The main difference between tsuika and palinka is tsuika is single distilled and palinka is, is at least double distilled. And tsuika is like apparently pretty common to like people make it in their homes. People have little uh, like stovetop distilling the mechanisms. And I've uh, actually, the first time I was in Romania, we were staying at this Airbnb situation and we had this beautiful smell. And the guy who was a host said, oh yeah, that's my grandma making tsuika on the stove. So it's like a pretty common thing that people make. Palinka is a little bit more specialized and um, you need a, you know, better equipment and it's a double distilled process. But Getting into my story of like why this means something to me is I once found myself getting a tour of kind of like, I don't know if it was bootleg, but it was definitely not like the most like above board uh, Palinka distillery. It was like in a small town. It was in the back of this lot where they were also like making, there was like these old guys hand chiseling uh, cobblestones and they were making all sorts of stuff on this property. But in the back corner, there was this little hut and uh, the, the, uh, distiller there was giving us a tour of this facility where they make it and it's a really cool process it's super simple essentially they they take all the plums during the you know the you know the harvest season and they just put them in a big bucket <laughs> and they like smash them up right and then they just let it distill it just distills naturally there's no like added sugar there's no added yeast um, you mean f ferment ferment sorry yes sorry <laughs> yes you're right i meant ferment it just ferments naturally mm -hmm. um they don't add any yeast. They don't add any sugar. It's just it's just there. They let it ferment. And then they, you know, strain out all of the chunks and stuff. And then they bring it into the still. And the still that I that I uh, saw was really beautiful. It was made out of all copper. It was hand hammered. And there was two stills. There was a big one and a smaller one for the two steps in the process. And the one thing that I found that was really, I found really interesting is that they would, uh, in the big one, they would take off this like, um, little like hatch to pour the 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 wine in the plum wine and then they would put it back on but to seal it so none of the distillate escaped or only went out the pipe they wanted to they made a paste out of wheat and they would cover any seams with this wheat paste 
that you would have to then break again anytime that you uh, like wanted to get into it. And the second, the, st- the second still, the much smaller still, it was actually in two pieces, and you basically would have to take the entire top piece off to put the next level of dis- uh, you know distilled wine into, and then seal that whole thing again with this this like wheat paste mixture, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then yeah, they they would do this double distillation. They they I asked them about the process of uh, taking out the heads and the tails, which you know about distilling that you know you only want the middle part that's coming out in this distillation because the the first part and the last part are like not good for you <laughs> different Gen- alcohol generally more poisonous yeah. <laughs> yeah and so they they but they said that they kept i think it was the heads they would reserve the heads and use it for cleaning they would they would like use it like put in a spray bottle with water and use it to clean stuff which is like, oh, that's pretty good great um <laughs> and then after they talked us through this whole process the owner of the property inv- invited us to have uh lunch where we were served some palinka, also some homemade cheese and some homemade uh, um, charcuterie, and then, um, and then of course I had to buy some palinka. And this is a really common thing in Romania. You don't find palinka in the in like the liquor store in glass bottles. You only buy palinka in reused soda bottles. <laughs> like that's the thing. Like, and so you come it comes in these like you know whatever bottles they have and that's how you buy it in like the you know 1.5 liter um bottle so we uh, bought bought some of that and then but to go home <laughs> to fly back home i didn't want to bring it um in a plastic bottle i felt like that was like too dangerous so i went and bought these little um glass uh, like uh spring water bottles and i put it in there and i thought it was very appropriate because the the name of the brand of water was Aqua Carpatica, which means Carpathian water. Nice. And I was like, oh, that's actually, <laughs> plum brandy is probably more accurate to be Carpathian water. Um, they, you know, it's pretty common. Um, one other little story about the brandy that I thought was very entertaining is uh, some some friends I, I know there were in Germany for some kind of event and they brought some palinka with them. And after like, it was like a, an event, but afterwards they were like, sitting around this table in this like conference space drinking palinka i wasn't there but this is the story uh, that was told drinking palinka having fun but they left the bottle on the table and it was also in like a water bottle right let's so it was brought up in like a yep. water bottle that you do it <laughs> Uh-oh. and then <laughs> the next day they came back to the conference space a little bit later and the bottle was still on the table but there was a note on it that just said not water <laughs> nope <laughs> <laughs> which is good so so when i heard that story i did i took a little picture like that and sent it to them when i got home just as a joke of like not water um and then one last little thing maybe to tie us back to switzerland and absinthe but not absinthe but alcohol in switzerland when i lived in switzerland i learned about a really great drink that is called a shumli flumli have you ever heard of a shumli flumli oh no i haven't <laughs> so this is a, a very Swiss word. Swiss uh, German has a particular sound to it. And the actual words in, in high German are Schauma and Flauma. Schauma or Schaumen maybe means uh, whipped cream. And Flauma is the German word for, for plum. And so a Schumli Flumli is whipped cream plum. And it's basically, it's a, it's a coffee with plum brandy and whipped cream on top. And it's a great thing to have after you're skiing in the mountains. You can order yourself a Schumli Flumli. Warms you right up. Nice. Part of the apres yeah. ski world of drinks. Yeah, apres ski. That's a good one. I love <laughs> it. So anyway, that's my story about a, about plums and more particularly plum brandy. And uh, I still have a little bit of that remaining brandy left. I haven't been to Romania in a while, but um, but uh, hopefully I'll get some again. And there's other other countries make good plum brandy. Oh, too. yeah. I've One of the first times I had plum brandy was in college from my Serbian friend. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> I bet you that's also really good. That was yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have like any like go to drinks that have like that's not I can't think it's not super common in like cocktails, is it? Plum brandy. Oh no, it's not. But that's the whole thing about the the category of eau de vies, which are these brandies, right? Um, made basically uh, fermented and distilled fruit that is not grapes, because brandy technically mm-hmm. is grapes. But so we say eau de vie uh-huh. instead to be talking about fruits that are not grapes. And I did create like a, a Ricky with a plum brandy or plum eau de vie oh, once. Wow. And uh, that was fun. So it was just, but I used like, I incorporated some grape juice, used the plum brandy as a base, fresh lime, and then some like high mineral content water for bubbles. Cool. But there's, it's not common, but eau de vies in general in cocktails are not super common. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess there people like to drink them more straight. I guess like yeah. they're also expensive, mostly. Uh huh. Okay. Unless I you smuggle that, yeah. them back in a plastic or water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, that's what I got to say about plums. Nice. I love it. I love plums. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the ice box, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet and so cold. A poem by William Carlos Williams. Um, I was, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, things might sound a little bit different here because I'm at a bar and Chantal is behind the bar n- now and she's going to be making some drinks and uh, we're going to get some orders in. Uh, you were going to get something? Sorry to interrupt you, Mark. <laughs> So, Chantal, I was wondering, among your absent selections, which would go best with the aloe liqueur option? Ooh, well, we just actually did one over here for Sherry. Okay. The, the aloe was really pretty and light. And, uh, so this is an absinthe night right now. This is a special evening uh, that happens uh, whenever there's a fifth Thursday in the month. It's called the fifth column, and it's absinthe-related. So it's a very absinthe-themed evening, and that's why I decided to record here this evening. Highlight the herbal, like the herbal sweet quality. I mean, what did we decide? What did you have? You had the one that you said was more herbaceous and green. Okay, so my, my friend Mark just ordered the view Pontalier Absinthe Vert with, with the aloe uh, liqueur. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's called the Chero Aloe Liqueur. Can you show the Yeah, show me the bottle. Uh, the audience loves to see things on podcasts. You describe it. Pretty neat. It's just very fresh and aloe-like. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it smells like aloe, tastes like aloe. It's a sweetness. So, I am going to order the death in the afternoon on a plum fine evening, which, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chantal, the death in the afternoon is a drink that was invented by Hemingway, or at least that's the story. That is true. And that is a drink that is uh, absinthe and, and champagne. Yes. But you... Oh, yeah, purported, yeah. developed, created by Ernest Hemingway when he was on his boat. Um... The pillar, I think it was called. And he, and he was just traveling around with a bunch of absinthe and, and uh, champagne and was like, this is the cocktail for me? Oh, yeah. I mean, he developed all kinds of tastes for things, including sherry when he was in Spain, and then absinthe, which is very European, like everywhere in Europe, right? And also in, in Middle Eastern areas, all the nice flavors. And it was just, it's just, it was part of the norm. Like, versus here in the U.S., you know, people don't find anise so friendly. It's not something we grew up with. We grew up with thinking it's gross, but it's actually quite lovely. Um, yeah, so he created the death in the afternoon, and that kind of is the story behind it. He was on his boat. He drank a lot on that boat. 
But this is the death in the afternoon on a plum fine evening, and it's because this is a special cocktail inspired by our episode, which is, you know, an absinthe and champagne, but it has uh, plum brandy in it as well, which is very cool. Um, this is, this is a, what, what's the story behind this plum brandy? Oh, also known as Slivovitz or Slivovitz. I'm probably saying it wrong. Uh, it's actually an American producer, Clear Creek. They're out west coast, and they create all kinds of eau de vies. They're one of probably the most famous and original, like, eau de vie producers. Uh, they've done all kinds of different flavors, and I, I tried their Blue Plum or also Slivovitz way back in, two, I don't know, in the 2010s, maybe? And I enjoyed it so much, I included it in a couple cocktails. So we had a half a bottle lying around, and I was like, perfect, we can put this in a cocktail for this seven years. Well, I'm very excited to try this. I don't think I've ever had a cocktail with absinthe and plum brandy in it, so I'm very looking forward to it. And thank you for creating such a cool cocktail. Um, I'll put a picture of this on the on the blog when the episode comes out. The Sessional has just made a very nice twist of lemon. It looks beautiful, and uh, the the cocktail is uh, on its way. Oh man, she's the twisting that's going on now. You should see it. It's it's impressive. Yeah, it's, it's, you've never seen such high-quality lemon twisting uh, unless you've had a drink served by Chantal. And here it comes, the wonderful death in the afternoon on a plum fine evening. Thank you very much. Cheers, everybody. My guest on today's episode of Rootbound was Chantal Sang. Chantal is a bartender, a certified sommelier, and a certified sherry educator. You can learn more about Chantal and all of the cool events she puts on and classes she holds and other places she's tending bar at her website, which is cocktailsforendtimes.com. Yeah, Chantal, she knows a lot about fermented beverages. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington. That is me. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside... Head out to the bar and order yourself up a glass of your favorite fermented plant sugars. Celery! It's aromatic.